Hey, hot cakes. Welcome to Hot Take, the podcast where we talk about the climate crisis and all the ways that we're talking and not talking about it. I'm Amy Westervelt. And I'm Mariana Yees Hegler. This episode, we're doing something just a little bit differently. We're going to play a clip from a show that I was on uh, last December, Story Collider podcast, where I told a story about Hurricane Katrina. That's right. And we're running that because it's the anniversary of Katrina, which was kind of the the first storm where people started talking about mega storms as a result of climate change. <laughs> yeah. And it's hard to believe, but that was 15 years ago. That is hard to believe. Uh, (laughs) Right? Yeah. Right? It was 15 years ago. I have written about Hurricane Katrina, well, once mainly in an essay that I did in Guernica last year called After the Storm. And I wrote about like my grandfather going outside to feed his hummingbirds in the middle of the storm. Mm. Um, And this clip also starts off kind of with that story. And the interesting thing about like a storm like that and how it, how you can tell that story is that there's a million ways to tell that story because when Hurricane Katrina came to town, like it wasn't like my life began or ended. Mm -hmm. There's so many like other intersecting things that are going on with that story, right? Like I could have opened it with my mother praying for rain because there had been a drought that summer and her flowers were dying. Mm. So she wanted rain and she thought Katrina was like the manifestation of her prayers. Oh, and then wow. It was like, Oh, wait a minute. No, it wasn't. Right. So like, that's the thing. It's like, it's a story that never, ever ends. Yeah. Another example is, um, so long, a little while after that story was published, I ran into one of my college roommates who was my roommate, my senior year of college. Mm-hmm. And Katrina happened the summer between my junior and senior years. And I was late getting back to school because I couldn't travel. I couldn't get out of the, the state. And um, she had read the essay and she was like, oh, my God, I remembered so much of that. And I also remembered that you wouldn't let us pick which room we were going to be in because you weren't back yet. Uh, <laughs> we, were living, we, <laughs> we were living in this house. And, like, there's four rooms and nobody could, like, unpack their stuff until I got there because I was like, I want, I don't want to be left with a shitty room. That's there was hilarious. One room that was really small, and I didn't <laughs> want that room. And I was like, you're not taking rooms until I get there. And <laughs> I have forgotten. Of course, I'm not going to write an essay about, about that part of the story. But, oh, man. Yeah. That's really yeah. funny. That is really, really funny. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny how these things kind of like shape our lives too in ways yeah. that we don't always talk about or think about until later. Um, you know, yeah. I remember growing up in California, like fire was, well, fire and earthquakes are just sort of part of your life. But mm-hmm. the first time I remember being like dramatically impacted by fire was um when the summer Olympics were happening in Los Angeles, actually. And there were all these massive wildfires and they kept having to um, move events inside or try to change events Mm -hmm. or change the schedule or whatever. And I just remember that summer there being ash, like raining down constantly. And like, wow, it's, it's how old were you? I had to have been like eight or nine. So like, Mm -hmm. um, you know, and like summer's hot in California, in Southern California. So like, you want to be like at a pool or at the beach, you know? Um, And those were like kind of not options because you couldn't really be outside. And yeah. So anyway, 
it's just, it's weird how those things um, come back to you throughout your life. Yeah, they kind of like book in the stories of your life. Like you bring up this big event and everybody's got like a big story around it. One of the the first hurricane I remember is uh, Hurricane Andrew in the 90s. Mm-hmm. I believe it was the I remember that 90s, too, actually. actually, just like from the news. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I'm going to look up the, it was 1992. Oh, wow. Um, and I was, I was nowhere near the coast, but my brother was at Disney World with his friends. Oh, wow. So he was in uh, Florida and had to come back really fast. And also Birmingham, where I lived at the time, this was before we moved to Mississippi, we got a lot of tornadoes because mm. of it. Because um, that's like another thing people forget about hurricanes. It's like after they, they come, come on with land, tornadoes, they come, right? They come right. with tornadoes, right? Kind of yeah. like the derecho in um, in Iowa. Oh my god, that was basically a a, a very far inland uh, hurricane. But yeah, like I I remember it being like a big influence on how I saw the sky even mm. for a while because it it does affect children. Yeah, and like shapes your memories. I worry about like children now and how many like I I thought of natural extreme weather um as a child as like this thing that can happen whereas I wonder if they're going to think of it as like this thing that happens all the this time. It's just constantly that's, present. Yeah. yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. 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 We had our first um fire tornado uh warning in California. <laughs> Year. I thought it was the first <laughs> warning issued ever. It is. Yeah. Yeah. That like the, the weather service had to issue a warning about fire tornadoes. So that's a thing now. Um, yeah. Yeah. At least there's a warning system for it. That yes. feels like a good thing. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. I don't know yeah. what you do if I... you're in the path of a fire tornado. I guess leave. <laughs> I mean, text your friend. I don't know. Um, yeah. Yeah, I remember tornadoes a lot as a kid, um, just not nearly as much as now. Yeah. So, yeah, it's it's just interesting how these things kind of form a basis for your for your identity and for the story of your life. Yeah, totally. So big thanks to um, Story Collider for sharing this audio with us. And here is Mary telling one of her Katrina stories. Science story, huh? These NYU scientists, they felt I figured it out. It was that golden moment. Because science was on my side. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Story Collider, where we bring you true personal stories about science. We are your hosts, Aaron Barker. And Liz Neely. Our next story today is from Mary Anise Hegler. It was recorded in December 2019 at the Tank Theater in New York. The theme that night was Baby It's Cold Outside. So people usually think that I'm taller than I am. Um, which is great for me because I have a brother who's over six feet, a sister who's over six feet, and a father who's over six feet, which means I have a very intense Napoleon complex. Um, but the reason people think that I'm so much taller is because of my granddaddy, my mom's father. He was not very tall either. Um, he stood at about five foot eight, so he's like average height, but he stood really tall. 
with his chest puffed out like a robin and his shoulders slicked back like he dared the sun and the moon and the whole damn sky to even try to knock him down. And when I was really little, I would imitate him when he wasn't looking. And I got really good at it. And my grandfather was stubborn. He was proud, and respect meant everything to him. So I remember when I was little, and my mom used to tell me all these stories about this dog they had when she was a kid, and all these fantastical stories that were just so outlandish, I didn't believe them. I went to my grandfather to get confirmation from a serious person. And my grandfather didn't answer my question. He just threw his head up in the sky and was like, that dog respected me. <laughs> Everybody did. Um, my grandfather taught me how to play Pinochle, which if you don't know, is a very complicated, sophisticated card game. So complicated that you don't even use the same deck of cards that you do for every other card game. Um, and he taught me really good. So I can sit down at any card game, card table now, and just dominate it. <laughs> Nobody ever sees it coming. <laughs> I, I love telling stories about my grandfather largely because he was such a good storyteller. And that's probably why, or at least part of why I got into storytelling and into writing. Um, and I remember when I was in the fifth grade, I wrote this short story. And I really belabored it and wrote it all out by hand in pen. And I went over it over and over again to make sure that there were no typos in it. And I drew this whole cover page for it and bound it up and sent it to him in the mail. He was living in D.C. at the time, and I was living in Mississippi, and I waited every day for him to write a letter back to tell me what he thought of it. And when I finally got the letter in the mail, his feedback was fucking brutal. <laughs> <laughs> he critiqued this shit like I was a grown woman. And I wanted to write back to him and be like, dude, I'm 11. But I don't talk back to my grandfather. So I didn't do that. But a lesser 11-year-old might have stopped writing. But I was my granddaddy's granddaughter. So that meant I'm stubborn too. So I kept writing. I just didn't show it to him anymore. <laughs> so I liked having things in common with my grandfather. And one of the biggest things we had in common was our hometown. We were both uh, from Birmingham, Alabama. Um, which is where the big base of my family is from, and we were both so proud to be from there. Um, and But when I was nine years old, my mom moved me and my brother from Birmingham to Mississippi, um, which, you know, I think uh, this is lost on a lot of people in the North, but the way that people in the North think of the South, that is the way that people in the South think of Mississippi. <laughs> <laughs> so when we moved to Mississippi, it was like kind of a thing in our family of like, are you serious? You really want to do this? Are you, are you okay? Um, and one of the main people who thought that was my grandfather. Uh, my grandfather always looked down on Mississippi and thought it was, you know, sort of beneath him. So when he would come to visit, he would always like have a lot of shit to talk. And so imagine the injury when he was forced to move to Mississippi when he was well into his 80s and already succumbing to dementia. That was when he had to come live with my mother, by which point I'm already, you know, out of the house. Um, and I held on to that sort of stigma about Mississippi, too. Even though I grew up there from the time I was nine years old, I sort of still looked down on it with my Alabama nose and sort of felt like, 
I live here and I kind of grew up here, but I'm not from here. I'm different. I'm special. I'm like granddaddy. And but that all changed for me when Hurricane Katrina came rumbling through the state on the 50th anniversary of Emmett Till's murder. And in fact, one of my favorite stories to tell about my grandfather happened on the day that Hurricane Katrina um, came to town. Um, so, you know, we all knew it was this big historic storm, as evidenced by the fact that it was even coming to where we live. We did not live on the coast. We live 200 miles from the coastline. And um, so everybody's taking it very, very seriously. So imagine my surprise when in the middle of the storm, or close to the middle, like the eye is almost about to pass over where we are, um, here comes my granddaddy in his raincoat and his little hat um, walking to the back door. And my first thought was, maybe he just got overdressed to go to the kitchen. Maybe he's just going for a snack. I don't know what's happening here. Because, again, he's already started to give into dementia, and I didn't want to add insult to injury by, as his granddaughter, bossing him around and telling him what to do. So I just sort of, I didn't want to intrude on his autonomy. But then I heard the back door slam, and I was like, okay, I got to get involved. So I got up and went to the back door, and I'm not proud of this, but I yelled at him and told him to come back in the house. Um, and he muttered something about going to feed his hummingbirds because the hummingbird feeder had been knocked down because it's a hurricane. <laughs> you know? And I was like, granddaddy. And I was like, all right, just calm down. Just calm down. Granddaddy, it's a hurricane. The birds aren't out right now. And like, he don't even turn around all the way. He just like sort of shoots over his corner, over his shoulder and goes, you don't know, you're not a bird. <laughs> and you know, facts, I, I, I am not a bird. So I was just like frozen by that. Like, you got me. <laughs> Touche. And, uh, and I couldn't physically get him back in the house. Like I couldn't even get to him before he was like, completely off the porch and then in full view of the wind. So he took one more step and then Katrina was like, oh, no, you don't, <laughs> and knocked him clean off balance. And that little proud strut he had going out there turned into this embarrassed little shuffle and he comes back in the house. And this is before things got really bad. This is before we lost power. This is before we lost water for three days, which felt like an eternity. We lost power for about a week. Me and my mom can't agree whether it's five days or a full week. Um, and we lost phones for three or four days. And I say all that because I think when we think about Hurricane Katrina, the disaster in New Orleans, which was absolutely devastating and but also very much man-made, the natural disaster in Mississippi gets completely eclipsed. Um, and both of them broke my heart. Um, and it wasn't until the power came back on and I got to see what you know Mississippi looked like beyond my own street that I realized that I wasn't exactly like my grandfather as much as I admired him. Um, seeing Mississippi broken and on her back like that made me realize that I was just as much a Mississippian as I was an Alabamian. And I saw how all of these things I used to look down on, like I used to look down on the fact that the water uh, sometimes would come out of the pipe as thick as mud. 
and the electricity grid would sometimes just give out with or without a storm. And I used to think that those things were so, you know, I don't know. I guess I was just bougie about it. And um, then you see how a state, like a disaster like that is completely neglected and wiped out even as it's happening. You understand how that sort of trauma can last for a really long time, how wounds that never heal turns into water that doesn't run and electricity, electricity that doesn't work. Um, and I realized that I am just as much of this place and from this place as I am in this place. And I love this place. Um, so, but then at the same time, I kind of realized I, I am still very much my granddaddy's granddaughter because when the groceries started running low and my mama's car was in the shop, I decided I'm going to walk to the grocery store. I'm not going to ask anybody for help. And that is quite a spectacle in our town. Our town is very small. And even though it's very walkable, um, people don't walk there. It's not a thing that people do. It's a spectacle. So when I was walking home with all of these groceries and my neighbor pulled over and quite angrily demanded that I get in the car and that I ask for a ride the next time I need a ride, um, and I looked in his face and realized I had actually insulted him by not taking up his generosity and not calling upon his kindness, um, I didn't know how to explain to him, yeah, but I'm my granddaddy's granddaughter and I'm stubborn. <laughs> Um, but I did learn from that, and I did ask for a ride when I needed one to the airport to go back to college. So my granddaddy died in 2012. Um, he was 93 years old. He would have been 100 this year. Um, and we still keep the hummingbird feeders on the back porch for him. Um, and my favorite thing to do when I go home is to sit back there and remember him and remember the first and the only time I ever yelled at him. Thank you. That was Mary Anise Hegler. Mary is a climate justice essayist and communications professional based in New York City. Her writing has been published in Vox, Dame Magazine, Zora, and Inverse. She writes regularly on Medium and rants almost daily on Twitter. The Story Collider is also grateful for the support of Science Sandbox, a Simons Foundation initiative dedicated to engaging everyone with the process of science. The Story Collider is led by me, Artistic Director Aaron Barker. And me, Executive Director Liz Neely, with help from Deputy Director Nissa Greenberg, Operations Manager Lindsay Cooper, and the rest of our amazing team. The podcast is edited by our podcast team, including Zoe Saunders, John Chen, and Gwen Hogan. The theme music is by Ghost. Thanks for listening. If you're not already subscribed to our newsletter, fix that. There will be um, some writing from Mary on the subject of the Katrina anniversary in this newsletter as well. So check that out. Oh, yeah. Fuck the chicken. <laughs> no. Keep fucking that chicken. <laughs> Stop fucking that cow. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Guys, please don't fuck animals. They don't like it. <laughs> oh.